All right, well, if you could begin making your way back, that would be great. Grab your Bibles as you do. Maybe it's a digital version. Maybe you need to grab a copy from the chair in front of you or around there. Uh, But head on over to the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, We are now in week three of Ecclesiastes as we just walk through uh, this book of the Bible written by Solomon. And uh, what you have in the book of Ecclesiastes, and really specifically uh, chapter 2, which we will close down here this morning, uh, what you have in the first part of chapter 2 that we looked at last week was essentially Solomon walking through and breaking down why hedonism disappoints. Now, that's a really big word. So let's try to just briefly define what the word hedonism means. Hedonism is a philosophy or it is a worldview. It's a way of looking at life and the world that just says, I want as much pleasure as I can get. Now, part of that also then means I want to avoid as much pain as possible. So there's really a two-sided focus to the hedonist. Give me as much pleasure, keep away from me as much pain. And so when Solomon says in chapter 2, verse 10, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them, I kept my heart from no pleasure, the hedonist would go, amen, praise whomever the hedonist would be praising, Uh, because generally speaking, it's not God. Uh, So the hedonist is going to say, that is our banner. We will put that on the back of our car. That will go on our Facebook status updates. We agree with that. Give us every pleasure imaginable. Keep us away from every pain that might be possible, and we are going to be happy. We think in that way we will find a satisfied life and Solomon just comes onto the scene and goes wait a minute you guys are fools I've been there I've tried it it disappoints and I did it in ways and with a capacity that you can only begin to imagine perhaps not even imagine and so there there exists in our world a level of luxury that I quite frankly have absolutely no concept of. And I realized that a couple weeks ago as I was looking through that luxury magazine. It's like somebody really pays $2,000 for a coat. Like I just can't understand it. And then you, you don't get like the owning of private islands around. I think it just blows my mind. Like I have no concept that for me, luxury is driving a Buick with heated leather seats. Like that's kind of where it ends right now in my life. And there's untold luxuries that people are chasing that will disappoint. So wherever you find yourself on that scale, for you, if it just kind of taps out at the Buick, or if you've got the resources to maybe go a little further, the, the same is going to be true. You are going to be disappointed if that's what you aim your life at, and if that's what you believe will satisfy you in the long run. Give me as much pleasure as I can, keep me away from as much pain as possible, and I'm good. This morning... Where we get into chapter 2, verse 12, to the end of the chapter, is that Solomon is going to come on really the flip side of that coin. The first side of the coin was, give me pleasure, keep me from pain. The second is, let me be wise and a hard worker. 
Now, generally speaking, and, and, and this is, may not be as true in our culture as much anymore, but it's probably true in this room. If we were to put both of those worldview philosophies uh, on the table and have us evaluate which one made better sense to live your life by, I would imagine that those of us in this room would say, well, it makes more sense to be wise and a hard worker than to be somebody who's chasing pleasures at every turn around the bend. I think we would probably agree with that, and conservative individuals generally tend to do so. We aren't the people that are out trying to chase down every illicit pleasure life has to offer, and they are untold in what they have to offer. But we are then also people who will go, yeah, working hard, let's do that. Being wise, let's be those people. But here's what Solomon is going to say to that, too. It disappoints. And so where last week may have been a, a, a morning where we, we think through some, some really kind of silly ways that we might try to entertain ourselves from kind of forgetting what life is about, which, which is it's, it's something that is true. I, I doubt any of us in the room last week would have been like, yeah, I'm, I'm really aiming my life to find every illicit pleasure possible, and I'm going to go pursue that. And perhaps it was more like, yeah, I know those people who are trying to do that. And yet this morning, we're going to find in the text that the the goals and objectives of wisdom and hard work are probably ones that we can much more readily identify with as pursuing. But Solomon's going to draw the exact same conclusion. He's going to say, but if that's what you build your life on, if that's what you aim and pursue above all else you will find yourself sorely disappointed. And so, in some ways, on the grand scale of things, let's just kind of blow this up to the grand scale of things. If you build your life on wisdom and hard work, you're not any better off at the end than the person who has built their life on illicit pleasure in the running from pain. can perhaps be a hard pill to swallow because we affirm hard work. We will affirm wisdom. And yet the scriptures is real clear in kind of leveling that playing field and saying, no, the, neither one of those things are to be what we pursue at all cost or for the greatest achievement. And so what we're trying to accomplish throughout this study in the book of Ecclesiastes is that we may see that all areas of life are opportunities to worship Christ. See, what Solomon gave us last week was that pleasure ultimately is not wrong. Laughter is not inappropriate. Enjoying good meals is not something that we should run from. But they have their place. And there's a way to prioritize those. And the way to prioritize those is to see those as gifts from the Lord, which we'll see a little bit again even in our text this morning. It is to not pursue those things at all costs. So the, the meal, the laughter, the opportunities for entertainment have their time and place. Enjoying the things that life has able for us or provides for us to enjoy have their time and place. But they should roll up in worship. But if they're able to be rolled up as opportunities for worship, then at the same time, there is the potential trap for them to be idols that we run after. And thirdly, we want to see that an abundant life 
is found in and through Jesus Christ. Not that he rubber stamps everything that we say we want, but he transforms our desires so that what we actually then want is what he wants for us, and we aim and pursue everything that we have to those ends and to that objective. And so that's what we're trying to get out of this whole entire series. And this morning Solomon's going to break down wisdom and hard work for us. And he's going to allow us, Lord willing, to see how those have a part and a place and are opportunities for worship, but can also be traps if that's what you build your entire life upon. So let's not go any further. Let's pray together and then uh, we'll think through some things and hop in the text here. Father God, we want to just give you this time in a very specific way and ask you to come and help us to un- understand what it is that you have written through Solomon. Go, Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to see and understand what it is that the, the Bible says. God, Jesus said that the wise man builds his house upon the rock, the foolish man builds his house upon the sand, and that, that in very, very similar ways, that's what Solomon is saying, that the end of all, after all has been heard, is to fear God and keep his commands. Lord, that's to build ourselves upon the rock. And what Solomon breaks down and what he sees and, and will explicitly speak to today is really just the foolishness of sand that he concludes is vanity and just a striving after the wind. And so, Lord, please help us to see how maybe our lives are not built upon a rock. And maybe how these areas have a foundation of sand. And God, we pray that you'd help us to see hard work, to see wisdom as, as opportunities for worship. But also potential for idolatry and to pursue worshiping and glorifying you, and to run from the idolatry. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, one of the things that I think could be really helpful for us as we continue in our study in Ecclesiastes is to take a step back and to consider what it is that our church believes about its mission and vision. What is it that we are trying to accomplish, because that's the mission, and then why are, and how are we believing that that mission will actually be able to be accomplished? That's the vision, and it's important we understand that both of those things have a really important, clear definition to them, because the mission has been given to us by Jesus Christ himself. He said in Matthew 28, go into all the world and make disciples. And so we understand in part that our mission has been directly handed to us, that we may, we may sit around a table and try to cleverly word it to, to, to look nice on a bulletin or on a banner somewhere, but it's not a different mission that we're trying to come up with. And so what we, uh, over the past year and a half, if not even into two years ago, uh, the elders began working through clarifying what is our mission And so we just developed this statement. Our mission is to glorify God by being disciple-making disciples. That first and foremost, we see that there is to be our focus on glorifying God. Because we see that's primarily or chiefly what God's focus is. That He is the Lord and He glorifies Himself in and through all all things, and so we should be seeking to glorify Him in and through all 
things. And we didn't want to find ourselves assuming those things to be true, but rather explicitly communicating them that we believe our mission is to glorify God by being disciple-making disciples, by being followers of Jesus Christ who in turn make other followers of Jesus Christ, as Christ himself told us in Matthew 28, teaching them everything I have commanded to them, commanded to you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So our mission, what, what does Grace Church believe it is to do? Make or glorify God by being disciple-making disciples. How do we do that is then the next question. That's the vision question. Now, where the mission is the same for every local church, really across the globe, vision can be quite different. Vision can be a unique way that that church has been called by God to fulfill or achieve the mission. And so you're going to see lots of varieties in vision across lots of different churches, but it makes sense for us as a local church to clarify what our vision is. And so the first part of our vision, and there's four parts to it, is is Christ-centered worship. So we clarified this, and we believe that all people, saved and unsaved, are created as worshipers. Christ-centered worshipers are those who seek to exalt Jesus in every aspect of their lives and those who gather regularly with other believers to worship our risen Lord corporately together. Now that feels and sounds like a lot of words. Let me just try to break it down and simplify it to you for you that as an individual, regardless of saved and unsaved, somebody is worshiping something. As believers, we've been called to aim the direction of our lives every minute of our days at worshiping Christ. And we're to gather together, as the church has for 2,000 years, to worship Christ corporately. So there's an individual focus to that, and there's a corporate focus to that. So what we do here is significant But worship in your life doesn't begin and end on a Sunday morning between 9.15 and 11.45. It is all times. Well, worship then rolls forward into serving. We believe that God through the Holy Spirit has gifted every believer with gifts to serve the body of Christ. So you as a believer have received at least one spiritual gift from the Holy Spirit for the purpose of serving the body of Christ. If you're not serving the body of Christ somewhere as a believer, there is a deficiency in your discipleship. You should be using the gifts and skills and abilities that the Lord has given you, that the Holy Spirit has given you, to serve the body. That's the purpose and function of spiritual gifts. Furthermore, though, God has given and created each of us with unique abilities and passions that we're to use to love and serve both those inside and outside the church for his glory. So you see how this is kind of rolling back up to our mission. That, that you having the understanding and ability to change oil in a car maybe isn't a spiritual gift, but you can use those gifts and abilities that you have to serve people in and outside the church, whether saved or unsaved, for God's glory. So serving has a twofold aspect to it as well. Thirdly, and I've mentioned this before, because this is an area of our church that we don't really have developed. 
One of the bold prayers the elders put down on a list of bold prayers about two weeks ago when we met is that God would provide for us somebody to lead the leaders of the community groups. We would love to see this developed this year, the the beginning stages of this, to come to fruition this calendar year. And we're asking God to provide us with a leader that will help pave this way because we believe it as part of our vision and we think it's critical, but we also recognize it's not here. It's not developed. We believe God has created us for relationships with other believers where we live life together. And so we can do that in part on a Sunday morning, but there's a very very limited um, place to where that can extend. You, you, can, you can live out the one another's in part on a Sunday morning as we gather corporately, but it looks way differently when you are a part of a group of people that are characterized by caring, encouraging, praying, and holding each other accountable. There's a whole different layer of that type of care and one anothering, for lack of a better term. And so we believe those are really important and central. And lastly, we believe that all followers of Jesus have been placed in a mission field by Jesus to love, serve, and share with others the good news of the gospel. While God may call you one day to go to Africa, maybe, he has called you today to be salt and light for him where you already are. So it may be natural for us to think of Roy and Holly as missionaries because they don't live in America and because they're sent over to Ireland. But it is not wholly biblical for us to think that way because God has placed us here and now as his missionaries in Waynesboro, in Blue Ridge Summit, in Hagerstown, wherever you find yourself. So why mission and vision as a part of Ecclesiastes? Well, because it begins to help us understand what is it that we are supposed to have as an objective in life. Okay, if, if pleasure is to not be the objective, if we're not to be hedonists that just run after every pleasure available and run away from every pain available, if we're not just to be those who are wise and work hard, as we'll break down here this morning, what are we to do? Well, the mission and vision then is intended to bring clarity to what the Bible does tell us we are to do. That we're to glorify God by being disciple-making disciples. And the, the how that takes place becomes to be better defined or more fully defined through these four pallets hanging behind me, through these definitions that we have before us. And so where Solomon begins in verse 12 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, is he's going to begin addressing the fact that you and I can't try and accomplish anything greater than he did. So if there's an argument to be made against what Solomon has said, it might be this. Okay, well Solomon, you tried all of these things, but did you try this? Because I think this maybe is is something left untried as you did all of your experiments. And so I think that that maybe that's the one thing you didn't try that you would have found all these answers to. And he just steps in in verse 12 and goes, wait, no, wait a minute, no. Because that's just not true. And so Solomon begins, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Solomon is saying 
that all you and I can do is begin to get close in trying to mimic what he has already accomplished. He has resources that we don't have. He has wisdom that we don't have. He has, he has monarchs from other kingdoms bringing to him things that at least has not happened in my life yet. All we're able to do perhaps is get close to replicating what he has done. We will never surpass it, but what he tells us is that you're going to find the same results and conclusions. And he continues in verse 13, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks around in darkness. So Solomon gives us a very honest, very honest conclusion in regards to the question, what is better? Is wisdom better than folly? Well, he would say and does loudly, yes. If you have the opportunity or the option to live like a fool or to live like a wise man, live like a wise man. Live like a wise woman. Do not live like a fool because the fool is like somebody who doesn't have the ability to see. They walk around in darkness. The wise person has the ability to see. They walk around in light. So if you have the option between sight and no sight, pick sight. If you have the option between foolishness and wisdom, pick wisdom. But he will now tell us this wisdom ultimately does disappoint, and it's because death is the great equalizer. And in the tail end of verse 14, he continues, And yet I perceived the same event happens to all of them. That would be the event of death. And so look what Solomon then begins to conclude in verse 15. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this is also vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days of the come, all will have been forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So Solomon's given us a few ways and reasons why he concluded that this is not something that is going to be where you build life upon and why it does disappoint because you can have all of the wisdom possible and you're still going to die just like the fool. Now again, if you have the opportunity and the choice between being wise and being a fool, choose wisdom but understand that wisdom is only going to take you so far. And it will not change the reality of the grave. So Solomon looks out and he considers wisdom, he considers foolishness. And he begins to conclude in verse 17 that he hated life. Because what's done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Again, that word vanity means that it's, it's smoke or it's vapor. It's not going to withstand or stand underneath the weight of life. It, 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 it's like the breath that you and I breathe as we're outside in the colder months of the year that we see that then just very quickly evaporates. And it's, it's a striving after the wind because it's, it's, it's a trying to wrap your arms around a breeze as it comes by to somehow grab it and not let it go. 
It'd just be madness. I mean, if you saw somebody in the park trying to accomplish that, you, you might think they're acting a little goofy in that moment from your casual observation of their body language and behavior. And Solomon's saying, look, that's what these things are. That's ultimately what wisdom is. If you think the pursuit of wisdom is going to accomplish anything that is sustainable ultimately in life. So Solomon tells us that meaning and purpose are not found simply in making the right decisions and having the wisdom needed to navigate life's challenges. But here's where our mission and vision, I think, can come in and be really helpful and connects with what Solomon has said. Because an understanding of glorifying God by being disciple-making disciples gives life the meaning and purpose that wisdom cannot But then it allows you to leverage wisdom and apply wisdom to the pursuit of making disciple, making disciples. And now wisdom has found its place. Because wisdom's place is not to be the ultimate objective. It's not to be the ultimate end. But it is better than folly. And so wisdom's place is being leveraged or applied in the pursuit of something that will stand. In the pursuit of something that does have eternal meaning. That's where our mission and vision come into that. Where we believe that our mission is to glorify God by making disciples, making disciples. That's what you aim your life at. And now wisdom comes into play as a way to do that well. It's a way to take what you've learned, to take what others have learned, to listen from those who have gone before us, and to apply their words of wisdom in the pursuit of glorifying God by being disciple-making disciples. Wisdom can now be leveraged to that objective, to that aim. Wisdom itself cannot be a sustainable End. And so Solomon sees that, he concludes that, he considers back across the, 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 the landscape and the timeline of his life and, and, and considers how wise he has been and, and concludes that it's better than foolishness, but just says it actually didn't get me anything ultimately because I'm still just going to pass away the way the fool will. Well, secondly, Solomon turns his focus and attention in verse 18 then to work. One commentator wrote this, that these next several verses are the confessions of a workaholic. And Solomon turns his time and his focus and his attention to consider hard work. And he says in verse 18, and doesn't really pull any punches in regards to it, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toils of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. 
Here Solomon is deeply concerned with what is going to happen with his portfolio at the end of his life. And he is probably looking down the line and lineage of the sons that he has and thinking, this is not going to end well. And if you've read 1 Kings 12, you know that it doesn't end well. His son Rehoboam, who ascends the throne, was a fool. He was not like his father, and it does not end well. And so Solomon gave his son Rehoboam a united kingdom of 12 tribes, and Rehoboam gets in there, and it does not take long for that kingdom to divide itself, and 10 of those tribes leave Rehoboam's reign and say, we're going with this other dude. And what took place in that scene was that the elders of the nation came to Rehoboam and they said, your father worked us hard. I mean, you're not going to accomplish all the building projects Solomon did without a lot of people working hard. Because your father worked us hard. If you'll ease up on the hard labor, we will love and serve you forever. So Rehoboam said, all right, let me take this into consideration. So the first mistake Rehoboam did is he gathered everybody his own age and just started asking them what they think. All right, so those of us that are younger in life, we need older people in our lives to give us wisdom and perspective that we're not capable of because and you see it play out in Rehoboam's life and it had devastating consequences. He just gathered all of his buddies and he's like, should we let him off the hook? We should make him work harder. Like, dude, you got to make them work harder. Like, you got to exert some, some kingly authority here. You really got to really get in there and show them who's boss. And so he comes back and he goes, my father's workload was like a pinky. My workload's going to be like a thigh. And then they just revolted and walked away. And he lost the kingdom. And you could see Rehoboam maybe going like, I kind of saw that going differently in my mind. And, and, and I think Solomon's looking at the one who's going to come after him. And maybe the several. We actually don't know how many children Solomon had. 700 wives, 300 concubines. There's probably a lot of kids that are bearing his seed and DNA. We don't know how many he had, but I think he's at least looking at Rehoboam going, this is not going to end well. And I've done my best to build with wisdom, to gain wisdom, to have untold resources, and I am going to leave them to somebody who is going to act foolishly. And Rehoboam does. It's really interesting, even in today's world, Money Magazine in uh, their June of 2015 issue did some statistics in regards to this. 70% of inherited wealth is gone after it's been passed down one generation. So broad statistics in America... Those of you that are planning to leave resources to your children, the statistics say that your children are going to squander 70% of that. Now, by the time it gets to your grandkids, another 20% has been squandered. All that your grandkids have left to show at the end of their use of your money is 10% of what you saved. So, I mean, we can look at what Solomon saw We can look at Rehoboam, we can look at these things, and yet we can look very closely at our lives and ourselves. And and, and the, 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 uh, the almost constant 
constant message before us, whether you watch TV or read any type of newspaper. I mean, money management is everywhere. And there's reason for that. We need to be wise stewards of our money. But this this idea that we're going to work hard and we're going to leave all of this money, we get to conclude the same thing that Solomon said. We're just going to leave it to people who squander it. Now, there's ways to address that, and you can do so legally and with trusts and all that stuff and get a financial consultant and figure out how to not let your kids waste all of the money that you saved up and intended to be a gift for them. But just consider this, and this was in that article. It takes 19 days for a person who has inherited wealth to go buy a new car. 19 days from when they get the check to when they go buy a new set of wheels. And Solomon's saying, look, if all of life is, is just focused on, on working hard, on putting money in the Roth IRA and double matching the 401k and having mutual funds and a diversified portfolio, if, if all of life is that, you're going to find that it's deeply disappointing. And our American statistics bear out that reality. So again, this is another example of where Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. Now, we've got 401ks, we've got Roth IRAs, he just had a treasury of gold. So, and there's some differences, but it's not new. And he continues thinking through all of the reasons why this is despairing and why it is vanity. And in verse 22 he says, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Solomon's just being real honest about the fact that when life or when your one aim in life is to work as hard as you can and to save as much as you can and to have a large nest egg and portfolio to leave to those who come behind you. And what you do with all of that is you just find yourself working the long days. You end up very restless because your days at work are spent figuring out how to accomplish the next project, and your nights are spent wrestling with what am I got to do tomorrow, and he says this is a vanity. Now, in all of this, the Bible has very, very clear things to say about the wisdom of investing, the wisdom of leaving for your children's children. And so this is not a, a, a message that says just squander all your wealth right now. So please nobody walk away from this thinking that. Solomon is taking very clear shots at the life perspective that says, I'm going to work as absolutely hard as I can. I'm going to climb the corporate ladder as absolutely high as I can because I want to provide for blank and I want to leave them blank. And he just concludes, at the end of your days, you don't actually get a say as to how they use that money And you're going to find that your days were just spent in vexation and sorrow because of how restless and tirelessly you work at it. But we need to see and understand that work is actually a gift. And it is not God. 
Work is a gift in part because God has gifted it to us. Or I shouldn't say in part. It's a gift because God has gifted it to us. Adam was placed in the garden to work. And this was before sin. Work is not the result of sin. Adam was placed in the garden to work the garden, to cultivate it, to develop it, to cause it to flourish, to take the plants and the the different life that the Lord had placed in the garden and to, to bring it to a place where it was declaring God's glory as loudly and consistently as possible. And he was to keep it. He was to protect. And he was to guard. And you and I have been given the exact same objectives. And his wife was a helper to accomplish that task. There was something, despite of Adam's ability and and sinlessness, that he lacked. That Eve was then the complementing part to him. And work is to be seen as a gift, not as a god. Here Solomon is telling us, I pursued work like a god. And you know what I found? That I was going to leave it to my dumb son, Rehoboam, and he was going to squander it. And you give it a few generations throughout the rest of Kings. I think you get to about 1 Kings 17, 18. This is kind of where Micah's on the scene. The king of Israel at that point just gave all the money away to the king of Assyria. He's just like, you just take it. We'd like you to fight for us the next time we have a war. So just take it. And everything Solomon put away and saved was just given away to somebody else. But here in this text, at the tail end of chapter 2, we get one of the several rays of hope and silver linings, if you will, that Solomon gives us. He, several different times throughout this book, is going to give us these glimpses of hope in the midst of continually saying it's vanity, it's a striving after the wind, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Well, here he tells us and gives us something to do. There is nothing better, verse 24, for a person than he should eat and drink And find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And so here Solomon gives us this silver lining. He helps us understand that work, that eating, that drinking can indeed be opportunities for worship. And they are gifts given to us from God. And so I think eating and drinking and work can very explicitly mean eating, drinking, and work. But I also think they could stand for really all of life when you factor in and consider that eating and drinking and work are some of the most mundane things that we do in life. All of us eat, all of us drink, the majority of us are punching a clock. Those are things that happen, and they happen sometimes without even consideration of the fact that they are happening. But that's what Solomon wants us to do. He wants us to consider. He wants us to consider these little things in life, and he wants us to see and have a perspective that these things are gifts 
from God, and not just the things that we do as a part of the rat race of life, but they are the gifts that God has given us, and so we should find enjoyment from them. And the drinking of water should roll up in worship because God has given us the gift of water, the ability to drink water, the life-staining refreshment that water provides. But he also figured out how to produce all of the molecules and the H2O that went into water to even make it wet. He created it to begin with. We're to sit down at meals with one another and not just consume our food, but to enjoy it and to let it roll up as an opportunity of worship because God has given us the ability to eat. He has given us and provided for us the food that is before us. See, and this is what moves our perspective from under the sun to above. Virtually all of what Solomon concludes as he looks at life under the sun is just kind of how the natural man lives and works and, and moves and, and operates, says it's just vanity. But you get yourself above the sun. You allow yourself to now have a perspective that God is actually at work and God is gifting these things and eating and drinking and working are not to be pursued as the ultimate ends in life, but they're to be enjoyed along the path of life as you are pursuing the ultimate end in life. Well, those begin to have their proper place. They begin to be aligned correctly. So just think about this in the context of Christ-centered worship as disciple-making disciples. All of life should be worship. We certainly gather corporately, and there's a point, and there's a really distinct purpose to that, and it should happen, and it's right to happen, but all of our lives are opportunities for worship, and I am to be making disciples as I am pursuing growing as a disciple. So let's just place some of these things and work them out. What if my kids recognized that dad saw food as a gift from God and enjoyed sharing meals together? What if every time or the majority of the times, if I don't forget, we gather around the table and I give my kids the opportunity to have their focus roll up in worship that the Lord has provided this meal for us because he is a good gift giver. We're going to thank him for it. What if they said dad recognized drink as a gift from God and enjoyed the fruit of the coffee bean tree, maybe a little bit too much? But what if just the act of slowly enjoying a hot cup of dark roasted coffee gave me an opportunity to roll my kids' focus up in worship? See, it's taking the mundane things in life that Solomon has said, these are the opportunities to worship, and it's having the aim and objective to glorify God by being disciple-making disciples that now allows all of these little things and wisdom and all of the other areas that Solomon has addressed so far to be used and applied and leveraged to the aim that actually does matter. And will stand. What if my kid said dad recognized work as a gift from God and enjoyed hard work and wasn't lazy. But dad just didn't work hard at his job. He worked hard at home. And he sought to build a home that honored God and glorified God. And he did everything he could to protect that home. 
What if dads sought to understand wisdom and make wise choices for our family? What if we actually saw God or saw dad praying privately about decisions that we knew were coming up in our family? And what if we sat down as a family and we prayed publicly together about decisions that were coming up as a family? And we, we asked God to give us the wisdom needed to, to make those decisions wisely so that we may glorify him. What if my kids observe that in my life? What if my kids are able to step back and say, my dad always kept learning. He never was content in thinking that he knew everything there was to know in life. He never was content in thinking that he knew there, everything there was to know about God in the Bible. He always kept learning. We always saw him reading. We always heard him asking questions. He was always looking for somebody that, that may know more than him about something. And he was always willing and ready to say, teach me. I really want to know. What if my kids are able to look at me and say those things? That begins to strike at the heart of glorifying God by being a disciple-making disciple. And it allows for all of these other opportunities in life to actually be leveraged as opportunities for worship and applied in the pursuit of glorifying God and making disciples. An understanding of life that, see God, that sees God as a good gift giver in all areas of his life as good gifts is how in part faith can free us from spinning on this cul-de-sac. This understanding can free us from the restlessness and sorrow that, that hard work may give because we're able to see and understand how things should rightly be prioritized. See, then... I get to use my life for the meaning and purpose of making disciples. And I'm able to actually begin to see how each part of life can be leveraged and applied in that aim and to that pursuit and for that direction. So when we get above the sun, we begin to see that, you know what, eating and drinking and work, it's not meaningless. It has profound meaning if you don't pursue those things to find meaning. And so where we'll end this morning is the band leading us in a song that just focuses our focus and attention on Christ alone being our cornerstone. Being the one in whom our hope is found. That we don't place our faith and hope, we're not hoping and trusting in all of these other things that life has to provide. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Hope and trust for salvation, most certainly. But hope and trust to make sense of the everyday, to make sense of the mundane, and to see those as opportunities for worship and disciple-making. Would you stand?